not, I actually embrace being in a room where I'm the only or one of few women because I think, hey, here's my opportunity. I don't look like everyone else. I don't dress like everyone else. So let me be as, as in as bright colors and big jewelry as possible and, and just figure out, okay, you know, how, how can I make this ultimately be something beneficial for me in business. And that's part of the reason why um, in any um, instance, I am very conscious of the networking possibilities, both, you know, on both sides, really, um, not just for me, but, you know, what can develop from that. Alexandra Labenthal is a third generation Wall Street power broker. Her grandparents started Labenthal and Company 92 years ago, helping to redefine the municipal bond business. Her company has seen better days. She's in the process of selling much of it to South Street Securities Holdings, though she'll maintain control of the corporate bond operation. And she's undaunted. Through the years, Labenthal has shown a steadfast determination to maintain the family name and to blaze a path in the boys' club world of finance. This is Fort Knox, Rich Ideas and Powerful People. I'm John Fort from CNBC. This is a weekly podcast bringing you the highest achievers from business, entertainment, philanthropy, and sport. We're going to learn how the very best climb to the top and pull out lessons along the way. If that sounds good to you, make this a habit. Subscribe on Apple's podcast app or Google Play. And once you've done that, tell a friend. I sat down with Labenthal to talk about growing up in New York's financial world, her view of gender imbalances in corporate America, and how she feels now that her college-aged daughter has surprised her by deciding to follow in her footsteps. Here's Alexandra Labenthal. We're in our 92nd year, which I often marvel at. I mean, we've had a couple of chapters along the way, but the fact that that name is still here is really remarkable. And you have worked behind and fought for that name uh, across many years. Difficult chapter now. Tell me, where is that in terms of you're, you're working to sell a business mm -hmm. and deal with some creditors and all yeah. that? Where are things? So I'll tell you, um, you don't appreciate how hard it is to actually start a business, have it thrive, until you actually start something from scratch, just as my grandparents did back mm. in 1925. Um, we expanded into a new area, and you have to be able to do that and explore new things and thought it was going to be a great success and instead it was the exact opposite and um, got ourselves into a bit of a predicament because of that even though our other two businesses are actually very strong and profitable. Um, and so we are actually, we've announced a sale which will keep the Labenthal name, that's always something that tends to be of interest. Right. Um, and it will, it's only 49% of my broker-dealer, which is a woman-owned broker-dealer, so that it can stay that way. So, um, you know, you spend a lot of time thinking, did I make the right choices? Was I with the wrong people? Should I have seen signs? And, and it's really hard not to do that. In fact, I do it every day. <laughs> um, but I think at the end, it's all sort of a learning experience, and getting to the next chapter is the most important thing. Now, as, as long as you've been alive, you're name and your family has been associated with this business. As a matter of fact, I think you said that one of your earliest memories is of your grandmother sitting behind mm -hmm. a desk at work and that sort of keyed you into the possibilities for your own future. 
Yeah, so when I was really little, I mean, four years old, my dad would take my older sister and I down to the office, and at that time, Leventhal was in downtown, um, and the Statue of Liberty was right outside my grandmother's office window. So here's this four-year-old girl walking in, sees my grandmother at this desk with the Statue of Liberty behind her, and she's running a company. So that gets filtered into your, your DNA if it wasn't already, already there. Um, I didn't necessarily think about that and appreciate that until I was already in the business um, mm. and then realized how meaningful her experience was for my career. And the wonderful thing is I actually sit at that same desk every day. So I see the, the marks and, and you know, knacks of, of 60 years of two women sitting behind that desk. Yeah, and it must have been I mean, tell me about what, what you know about the origins of the business, because your grandparents met, correct me if I'm wrong, um, taking the bar, after taking the bar exam. Now, if the company was started in 1925, your grandmother's a woman taking the bar before women, I mean, before women are voting, yeah, yeah, right? Yeah. So that's unusual. Very. So she graduated from Syracuse in 1920 with a law degree, and I actually have this amazing picture of her standing outside her sorority wearing, as women did in those days, men's knickers, a vest, a jacket, and a little cap, just looking like, I'm going to take on the world, so you better get out of my way. <laughs> um, so yes, yeah, they, they met at this, um, it was sort of like the Kaplan of the day, Stanley Kaplan of the day, this, this bar course. They ended up getting married. My grandfather was already, did work in the municipal bond business, and my grandmother was a practicing lawyer. And then she had this idea that they should create an odd lot market for individual investors. Um, so and so let's, let's mm -hmm. pause there for people who don't spend all day thinking about municipal bonds, right? right? Because that's actually most people, I guess. <laughs> so uh, governments, cities need money to do public works projects, update the sewers, what have you, and what? So here's the way my dad used to describe it. You can't get up in the morning without a municipal bond touching your life from when the time you turn on water, turn the lights on, get in the subway, go to school. So cities and municipalities, as you said, need money. So what they do is they borrow money either for specific projects or for their general capital projects. And in return, the interest is tax-free so that cities and states have a lower cost of borrowing. Mm. And it's guaranteed against, hey, we're going to get tax revenue. We so have people there, who live here, so... Yeah. There are two types of bonds. There's general obligation, which is backed by the full faith and taxing power, for the most part, of the, uh, of the issuer. And then revenue bonds, which may be the Triborough Bridge and Tunnel, MTA, um, San Francisco BART, um, projects that generate specific revenues that pay off the bonds okay. and the interest. And so in the early 1900s, New York doesn't have everything that New York has today. Where do your grandparents come in? 
Yeah, in fact, I should say that required reading for every person in the bond industry and New York City should be the power broker about Robert Moses because you truly mm. understand how much he did to develop the infrastructure um, that we now know as as New York City. Robert um, Moses being? Who was um, basically the first um, head of, I guess, urban planning, for lack mm. of a better word, but he developed everything from Jones Beach to the Hutchinson to uh, the Triborough Bridge, I mean, you, you name it, um, truly was instrumental in good and bad ways. But um, so at the time, municipal bonds were only uh, owned by institutions, banks, and so on. And so there would be, when trades were done, little pieces, $500 pieces, $1,000 pieces. And so what my grandparents did was create a marketplace to sell individual investors those small pieces. So somebody who's new to this might say, well, why do you need to sell them? Um, you know, the city mm-hmm. needs money. Uh, there are these institutions. So at, at what point do they need to be sold? Don't people just get them and then uh, collect the interest? So individual investors, for the most part, tend to do that. But there can always be reasons why an institution would need to sell bonds for an insurance company. It could be to meet liabilities they have um, for a bank. It could be they're making a change in their balance sheet or a change in capital requirements, which could affect a bond. So, mm. Or they may just want to take advantage of the fact that the bond has gone up in value and can make money, or even that it's gone down in value and sell it and have a loss that they can um, offset a gain with. So right. there are lots of reasons. And so your grandparents saw this as an opportunity. Right. Do you know how that came about? I mean, how does one, you, you're a relatively new lawyer striking out in the world and municipal bonds? So I like to think of them as the 1920s version of somebody starting up in their garage or something like that. Mm. Um, I'm, I'm, I don't know as much as I would love to know now. What I do know is that they took an ad in the Wall Street Journal, and we still have a copy of it, I think, that says Capital Wanted. They got one response from a man in Minneapolis. They took the bus out to Minneapolis, and when they walked into his firm, it was a brokerage firm, everyone was sitting on upturned buckets which was where bucket shops came from. <laughs> and they got a very bad feeling. They took the bus back to New York, and they just started with whatever money that they had in one room down at 120 Broadway. Um, they hired one woman uh, who came to work every day in her prom dress, because that's all she had. So it really you know, has very humble beginnings. Um, you, know, we can, you can ask another question, I guess, but um, my grandfather, had to stop work in 1945 and died in 1950. Mm. Um, he was ill, actually, high blood pressure, which today would be taken care of by medication. Um, so my grandmother really did it on her own for many, many years. So tell me about you. Where did you grow up in the area? Um, what was that like, having this name that, uh, by the time you came around, was mm-hmm. already probably synonymous with Wall Street? Yes, absolutely, because Dad really um, hit his stride in terms of building the brand in the 1970s during the New York City crisis. Um, Ah, the ads. Yes, the ads. (laughs) And he actually spent almost as much time on the SEC witness stand as the controller of the city at the time because he had been so prolific and positive in the advertising about New York City bonds. Um, So I grew up, I was born in 1964, so when New York City was really in, in the dumps, I was a 
you know, child who was aware of the surroundings um, in which I, I lived. And we lived on the Upper Upper West Side, which wasn't as hip then as it is today. <laughs> but I remember seeing huge piles of garbage bags on the street because they didn't have the money to pay for daily garbage pickup. Um, the city was not all that nice to be in at that time. So I think that really um, made a deep impression on me. And it's fascinating to see how much the city has changed. When you look at the Highland, which I remember driving in a cab or with my father, what, what have you, and um, just seeing that decrepit edifice. Yeah, the 70s. Uh Warriors, Escape from New York. Like people remember <laughs> these movies that are about you don't generally want to be in the subway, right? <laughs> or walking down the street in many neighborhoods. If you're walking under an underpass, expect somebody with a switchblade right. to pop out. That right. Was, we all got mugged. It was a rite of passage. Jiminy Cricket in Times Square. Mm -hmm. We're in Times Square now at the Nasdaq, right. and you know this was a place where you didn't. You know, even the crickets. <laughs> wanted to stay away yeah, from Times Square. Yeah, absolutely. It's funny, it's still, if I see there's a movie listing in Times Square, I pause and think, well, I can't go there. And then you realize not Times Square is <laughs> disney so it's okay. And so it sounds like this, the 70s were a challenging time for the business as well. So they, they were for a brief period of time, because 80% of what we sold at the time were New York City general obligation bonds. And there was a, a day when my dad did think, and I guess they were waiting for the court, they were waiting for the court's decision on, on whether the notes had to be paid. And my dad did say he remembered turning off, he was about to turn off the light and thinking, is this the last time I'm going to turn off the lights in these office, hmm. offices? And he got a call, I don't know if it was from a reporter or someone saying, um, court just ruled and bonds have to be paid and, you know, life, life went on and Mac was created and we started selling those. And um, so, it, it, you know, I think... And I, again, have some recollection. You know, as an entrepreneur, you're always going to have moments of great challenges, and the trick is keeping yourself together and getting through them. Hmm. So that left a mark on you. Mm -hmm. Where'd you go to school? Uh, so I went to a bunch of different schools in the city, and then I ended up in high school at Nightingale Bamford, girls' school on the Upper East Side. So I, I'm always um, passionate about women or girls' education at some point in her life. I say it gives you that extra dose of girl power that you need. And then you mean went, like a, a all-girls school? All-girls school or all-girls college. It just at some point in your life to have that amazing environment of being surrounded by girls or women in a place where you can truly develop the strength to be able to talk in class or, or really decide that you want to go for something, which I do see a lot of girls in co-ed schools don't necessarily have. So then... I ended up at Princeton University. But let's let's yeah. pause for a minute okay. because that's an interesting yeah. point, especially in today's society mm -hmm. where we feel like maybe we don't need some of the things that we were told we needed in the past. What change did you note in yourself kind of pre all girls school experience yeah. and post? And are there moments where there are teachers, where there are classes where you saw something happen for you? So I don't know that I necessarily was conscious enough to think about it before, but when I think of Nightingale, the, the image that is in my brain is the headmistress of the school, Joan McMiniman. Um, she was old school headmistress, not head of school. But she, if she said it once, she said it every single day, girls, you can do anything you set your mind to. And just 
for anyone to hear that over and over, um, it does drill into you. And um, did you need to hear that? I mean, this yeah, was this I, was know, the yeah. girl who had seen her grandmother behind the desk at age four with the Statue of Liberty in the background. I, well, I still think you always need to hear it at every stage of your life, even as you're a grown up. You need to hear it. Um, otherwise, I think you can get complacent, and when times are bad, feel like oh, I'm just going to throw in the towel. Um, when I got to college, I will say that I felt completely confident in class with boys or guys in the class. And the times I have also thought about Mrs. McMenamin and my, my um, experience there is when I've been in a room of 15 people and 14 were men. Mm. That probably still happens a lot. It does. It does. And, and sadly, now most of them are in their 30s and 40s, <laughs> so I'm older, too. Uh, we do Squawk Alley from the floor of the New York Stock yes. Exchange, and the traders on the floor, more than 90% mm -hmm. men. Um, you have, uh, well, first of all, before we get into um, the business that you've built, you lost the name for a while. Mm -hmm. How did that happen? So we sold the, the business in 2001 to Advest, regional brokerage firm owned by Mutual of New York. Why'd you sell it? Um, a couple of reasons, but really the most important one was that my dad and I were very much at odds about how we wanted to grow the business. And it really was becoming a difficult environment for me. And I remember talking to somebody else in a well-known family business who was a daughter and she had similar issues. And I said, well, what are you gonna do? She said, oh, I'll just wait till he dies. And I thought, that's not a good plan. I don't wanna have a strained relationship with my father and just waiting mm. until he's no longer here doesn't seem great. So that was, that was really the main reason. Um, I thought it would give us the ability to grow, which it actually did. We expanded the business significantly. Um, but, and I knew I was giving up control, obviously, but it ultimately did lead to the sale of Labenthal and Advest retail component to Merrill Lynch mm -hmm. in the fall of 05. And at that point, I thought, I don't really like the way this chapter's ending, this book is ending, so um, let me go back and just build something anew. But I did not have the name. Um, Merrill had said, oh, well, you'll be competitive with us, which made me feel very proud, but I knew it was complete <laughs> BS. Um, so I kept asking, and this is one of the things that I have learned in life, is never hear no. Just think of it as a placeholder until you figure out how to get to yes. How many no's did you get? Um, I got four, and one was from Stan O'Neill. So Who that, was running. Right, so that should have been yeah. a pretty firm no. What um, were they going to do with the name? Why did they want it? Nothing. They, they just it, didn't want you to have it. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, I think part of it was that I didn't stay with the transaction, so therefore I wasn't particularly helpful in getting people to go to Merrill Lynch, um, although, you know, they certainly had their own free choice and many of them made that, so I think that was, that was part of it. Um, but finally, I went to Greg Fleming, who was president of Merrill, and he's obviously gone on to be very successful. And he was uh, president but running the investment bank too, I believe, at the time. So he didn't even really know that they had the name. And he just said, this is kind of crazy. Let me just look into it. He called me a week later and said, great. You know, we, I, there's no reason why we should be holding on to this name. $1,000? $1,000. And the thing is, I kicked myself still. I had to name the price. And I kept trying to figure out how much they wanted. So finally I just said $1,000. And they said, okay. 
I thought, I should have said 100. You know? <laughs> and then you have some different ideas. You're not mm -hmm. just trying to right. redo a municipal bond business. Right. So the old Labenthal model, is, while it was successful, it's a very expensive model because we did not do any cold calling. All of our accounts came through our advertising, which is ultimately more efficient than cold calling because you're only getting people who call in that are interested. Mm -hmm. um, but it's expensive to run ads multiple times a day on radio and TV, even more expensive. Um, so going back and rebuilding that model wasn't something that I wanted to do. But one of the things I discovered when I was at home during my non-compete was how disorganized I was when it came to bill pay and overseeing investments that were at different places. And so I really thought, you know, there's got to be an opportunity to build a service along with asset management for individual high net worth, but not ultra high net worth um, investors that will that will provide those services. And at the same time, um, I also saw the incredible opportunities that women-owned firms had in the capital markets business. So, you know, one of the things I go over and over in my head was, you know, should I have chosen just one? And, you know, maybe, but I chose the, the path to do both of these things at once. Tell me about being a woman in the boys' club. Uh, it seems like, so you're a member of this, you know, or organization that you don't really talk about much. What's it called again? Uh, you'll have to look that up. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, includes the, the most high power folks on Wall Street, networking organization. Um, you know everybody who's everybody on Wall Street in part through that. Not many women are part of it. Oftentimes, at least in my reporting, it seems that when a woman is in the boys club, there's this implicit understanding that then you don't talk about sexism. Uh, I actually don't agree with that. Um, <laughs> I figure I've got an audience and a platform and I should, should talk about it. Um, I, believe it or not, I actually embrace being in a room where I'm the only or one of few women because I think hey, here's my opportunity. I don't look like everyone else. I don't dress like everyone else. So let me be as, as in as bright colors and big jewelry as possible and, and just figure out, okay, you know, how, how can I make this ultimately be something beneficial for me in business? And that's part of the reason why um, in any um, instance, I am very conscious of the networking possibilities, both you know, on both sides, really, um, not just for me, but you know, what can develop from that down the road? Over twenty-five, say, years, how much has the environment for women in finance in Wall Street changed? So, in some ways, it's changed incredibly and in a really positive way. You have women; they may not be women that are in the Wall Street Journal every day or people know like a Sally Krawcheck, but they're women who are running major businesses within big banks. So Liz Myers runs global equity capital markets at JP Morgan. Um, Roz Stevenson runs investment banking at um, UBS. Um, Mary Erdos, obviously, who is more of a, a brand name, um, running all of wealth and private management, private banking at JP Morgan. Those women would not have had those jobs 20 years ago. So I see that as a huge step forward. I also see 
a step forward in the whole women's network thing where it used to be sort of let's put them in the pink room and <laughs> they can talk about those things over wine and cheese. Um, now it's seen more as a, as a ground to develop and identify talent. What does upset me is not just within Wall Street, but within where we seem to be in the world and country right now, is that we still have to fight to be considered equal. Hmm. Um, and that's really frustrating. Isn't there a bit of a dichotomy there? How is it not a contradiction? You have more women in these positions of power, and yet uh, even they have to fight to be considered mm -hmm. equal or just you know, the best of the best are allowed through and uh, the vast majority are still significantly held back? How do you square it? So um, here's kind of a weird analogy, but picture that you're trying to you know, take a, a quilt and pin it to a wall and you need to have those anchors so that you can at least get it and so it's hanging up. Mm -hmm. So the Liz Myers and Ross Stevenson are those, are those pins, but then you've got the rest of the quilt and things are still drooping. Um, so you've got to identify how you're going to fill in the rest of the pattern and I think what happens is there are women that come out of school, um, they go into training programs, they do well, they, they make it up to a certain level and actually relatively successful. But there's no one, and Sheryl Sandberg's talked a lot about this, there's nobody saying, hey, you're great, we want you to stay, you've got real opportunities ahead of you. Hmm. And so it just becomes easier to drift away and when you get married and have a baby to not come back. So I think that's really where the key lies. And look, I haven't worked in a big firm like that, so it's hard for me to completely project onto the image of, or the persona of those younger women um, and how difficult it may or may not be inside those organizations. But you know, I do think it's, it's much harder in some respects than running your own business. You mentioned Sheryl Sandberg, Chief Operating Officer at Facebook, wrote the book Lean In, uh, which I read and enjoyed, and then found it interesting that on Facebook, a number of my friends who are women in positions of, of power in various organizations, there's a bit of a backlash mm -hmm. against the lean-in idea. How do you feel about it? So I embrace it because I, that's the life that I've lived. Um, it, it is very interesting that Cheryl did, ultimately after a year of living as a single mother and widow, change some of that. But. Um, you know, women are so critical of one another, um, and it's so easy to just be catty and scratch and pull people down, and I do think that's a little of it. Um, you know, look, Cheryl's lived a very unique experience that not every woman is going to um, experience, but there are a lot of women who want to try and be as successful as they possibly can be, and I think that that book really gives a lot of the, gives the roadmap for how to think and be that way. You mentioned that for a lot of women, given the barriers, um, given the difficulty in being considered equal in the workplace, it can be easier given the opportunity to let life events change the trajectory. You didn't do that. What was your thinking behind it? How did you process motherhood and moving through the different stages of life? So first of all, I um, was launching two mutual funds when I was pregnant with my first child, my son, and I thought, I need to get these done before 
I deliver because they're two really big things that I've been working on. Um, <laughs> my dad, by the way, when he came in to meet his grandson for the first time in the hospital, brought the, the brochures for the funds and stuck them in his, his crib, which was typical <laughs> of my dad. Um, it never occurred to me that I wouldn't work. So it was just, and probably again, because of my grandmother, it was just ingrained in me that I would continue to work. I'll say the most difficult times of being a working mother are when your children are not necessarily babies or toddlers, but when they're conscious of the fact that you are different from the other mothers that they're seeing at school. And uh, my daughter, who's now 20, when she was nine and 10 years old, would say, why can't you stay at home like the other mommies, which of course would just rip my heart out. Now, ultimately, she describes me as her role model. So, mm. you know, time passes, but that's the hardest part where it really does tug at you. Did she go to an all-girls school? She did. She went to the same school I did for 13 <laughs> years, and now she, like me, is at Princeton, actually. Um, and she, very surprising to me, is going to be working on Wall Street this summer. Huh. That's surprising to you? She's an art history I mean, major. you're probably the only one who would be surprised by that. Um, well, because she's an art history major and has never expressed an interest um, in in this side of the world at all. Um, so it's surprising from that um, perspective. And, um, uh, you know, she's worked at galleries and designers and things like that. And I think, and I do appreciate this, that she sees that there's a financial opportunity, um, <laughs> you know, as opposed to being an unpaid intern. Um, ironically, she got the job through, um, or the introduction came through a woman that I've known who's on Wall Street for a long time, and so there's sort of the old girls, new girls network already right. starting. <laughs> You've seen the world through her eyes as a parent, and the gender norm shift, and social media start to play a role in that dynamic that you talked about, that social dynamic that can tell girls, don't raise your hand in class, you know, uh, take on a certain persona. Have things shifted at all? Did you, did you see anything different in your daughter than, than you recall in yourself? Well, you definitely grow up a lot faster and with social media, Instagram, um, Facebook, Snapchat, the Kardashians, <laughs> um, or their own form of social media, I guess. You, um, I think the girls are very conscious of their bodies in a not positive way, um, and I've, I've seen that. Um, but at the same time, I also see in her and her friends, most of whom are actually gonna be working on Wall Street this summer, mm. this great maturity and strength of character and, um, goals that they've already set for themselves. And it was interesting because I um, texted a group of her friends and said, with all this talk about equal pay, will you guys have the courage when you get your first job to ask if you are being paid the same as a man? And they all said yes. Hmm. Did you ever have to do that? No, but that question then made me go back to my first boss at Kidder Peabody and say, you know, you were always very progressive, so I'm, I remember what I made, and did you pay me the same as man? And he said, I remember specifically hiring you, what I paid you, you were a college graduate, the other two people on the desk had experience, he said, I would have paid you the same, I would have paid a male graduate the same. 
Um, but in that day and age, I never would have thought to do that. To ask that. But it wouldn't occur to me that I wouldn't be paid the same. When you see headlines, stories like we do these days out of Silicon Valley, um, companies like Uber, but that's just one company that gets mentioned all the time. It has more to do with the culture. Here's a technology region that's supposed to be all about doing things a new way, um, meritocracy, not the old boys network, and yet it is majority male, particularly in the engineering ranks, similar to what Wall Street has long been. And it seems like we're continuing to have this conversation around gender that we've been having over a period of time. What's your reaction? You're right, and I have been thinking actually about writing uh, something for LinkedIn in the last few days because I'm really bummed out by it. Um, and in fact, what also drove me to that was uh, last week I was able to hear an author who's just written a book called Keep the Damn Women Out, which is about co-education of male colleges, Ivy League colleges, um, and how adamant alumni and current students were at the time about how little women added to the world. And um, at one school, uh, they used to yell out what the girl was was rated by the way she looked and dressed. And here you've had both Harvard and Princeton who've had to suspend athletic teams for that same type of thing. Um, it's so frustrating and debilitating, even as a woman who is in control of her own career. But you know, I think about those young girls and how you can exist in an environment like that. Because you know, yes, there's Cheryl. Yes, there's Ruth Porat, um, Saffir Katz, um, um, Meg Whitman. But you know, there's still so many men in control, and you've just got to have such strength of character to be able to hang in there. You have existed in an environment like that for quite a while. Was it just your expectation that things would have changed more significantly by now? Yes, I really thought they would have. And um, it's that's what's really frustrating, that you know the, the banner is hung, the quilt is hung, but there's still only a few tacks that are really holding it up. Fair to say um, your expectation was that your daughter would be standing on your shoulders when it came to gender issues, and maybe that helped you get through some of the things early on, and here you find she's standing closer to next to you. That's actually such a great way of expressing it, and I'm gonna steal that from you <laughs> if you don't mind. Um, Go right ahead. You know, it is true. Um, it, again, it's just very frustrating, and obviously the political environment and the, um, the election results, you know, I think it knocked us all like a two by four in the face and, and took the air out of us. But at the same time, once you kind of get yourself back together and pick yourself up, there's the realization of just to continue marching forward. Is that the answer, just keep doing it? Yeah, absolutely. Um, because eventually, as she said in her first campaign, there are 18 million cracks in the glass ceiling, but eventually it will truly smash through. And, and you're I do, quoting Hillary Clinton now. Yes, and I do believe um, that in the next decade we will see a woman running a major investment bank. Um, I have my, my thoughts on who it will be, but uh, I don't want to jinx it. Oh, so you have a specific thought on exactly who you think is going to yes. be running a major investment yes. bank. Were you surprised to see Ruth Porat go to Google? Um, 
Yes, I was, because obviously being the CFO of Morgan Stanley is pretty much the pinnacle of a Wall Street career, and yet at the same time, what a wonderful statement for her to make when her pay package was <laughs> revealed that women can make that type of money, and also for her to bring her expertise to a totally different industry. How much does the pay package matter in and of itself? Now, I mean, not just compared to what men make, because of course, equal pay, everybody can understand what that means. But interesting that you noted Ruth Porat moves to Google. Yes, her pay package is significant. Mm -hmm. um, what message does that send? Um, well, you know, the, of course, there's the incredulity of um, that type of money, um, which obviously makes the rest of the country really scratch its head, but that is, aside from a woman running a major business or running an investment bank in entirety, that is a true sign of success to get to that type of number. Because? Because it's equal to a man. And historically, the expectation has been you'll stop before you get to a level where you can make that much. Right, right. Do you get tired? <laughs> um, I get tired, but I also have a wonderful family, husband that I've been with for 31 years, going back to college, who is my biggest supporter and best friend. And we have a lot of wonderful friends and just have a lot of fun, um, you know, on the weekends, just having 15 people over for dinner and cooking and things like that, so I'm able to rejuvenate myself. Do you ever have any doubt that you'll be able to figure it out? God, you know, I, so much of the time I think, oh, what's gonna happen, what I'm gonna do, and you answer, you ask that question, my visceral response was, no, I never have any doubt. So thank you. <laughs> <laughs> My thanks to Alexandra Labenthal. I'm John Fort from CNBC, and this has been Fort Knox, Rich Ideas and Powerful People. Subscribe on Apple's podcast app, Google Play, or wherever fine podcasts are distributed. And please do leave a review if you enjoyed this. Also, check out Fort Knox Live on Facebook, Twitter, Periscope, now on YouTube. And yes, it is live. I'm taking your comments and questions, usually Wednesdays at 2 p.m. Eastern. There I tackle some of the most interesting business and economic issues with a little help from my friends at CNBC and from you. Next on the podcast, Michael Dell is the billionaire founder and CEO of Dell Technologies, one of the biggest names in tech. Over the past five years, he not only rescued his company from a hostile bid by investor Carl Icahn, but also managed to buy out public stores giant EMC. How did he mount a comeback when most had written him off? Go ahead and subscribe to Fort Knox now on your iPhone's podcast app or on Google Play. Meanwhile, share this. Tell a friend. Drop me a note on Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, or FortKnox.com. That's F-O-R-T-T-K-N-O-X.com. And as always, thank you for lending an ear. <laughs>